0: Thank you, Brennan. Thank you, worship team. Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Everybody's good? Happy long weekend to you. Good to see all of you. Um, If you don't know who I am, I'm Jamie. I'm one of the pastors here at at Seven Oaks, and uh, hello to our online community. Glad that you're joining with us, and uh, it's good to be here today. So um, today we are finishing Uh, The Gospel of Mark, our series in the Gospel of Mark. And you know how people say you save the best for last? Well, I've saved the most challenging for last. And that's just how kind of it flows. And so, uh, in a typical, uh, you know, non relaxed, long weekend kind of feel, I'm going to make you think today. So, you need to wake up. I hope you've had your coffee. You're going to have to lean in with me because we're in Mark chapter 13. And this is called the Olivet Discourse, it's called. It's also found in uh, Matthew chapter 24 and Luke uh, 21. And it is the most difficult passage in the Gospels, at least, to understand and interpret and so on. And so it's the piece where um, they're leaving. The t- so what happened is Jesus has um, come to Jerusalem. You know, we've had the triumphal entry in chapter 11. We've had the interaction with the, um, with the temple leadership in chapter 12 and so on. And in chapter 13, then, uh, they're they're in the temple, and they're leaving it. And the disciples say, isn't the temple cool, Jesus? And Jesus says, well, yeah, but it's all going to be destroyed. And then they leave Jerusalem, and they go up onto the Mount of Olives. And don't think of Canadian mountains, right? They're not on the top of like a snow-capped mountain looking down at Jerusalem some way. It's not like that. They're on the Mount of Olives, and there's Jerusalem, which is also on a hill uh, in front of them. So they're overlooking Jerusalem. They're high, but they're overlooking Jerusalem. And so they can see the temple. And they start to ask him questions about that. And Jesus goes into an answer to their questions. Uh, that includes a whole bunch of things that we would tie up with the theological um, branch called eschatology, which is the, the study of the end times, the study of things uh, that, are, that are still to come kind of thing. And so, this has been variously understood. Um, it is both frustrating and fascinating. Um, some things are clear, and some things are clear as mud. And, um, and so, uh, you know, when you interpret some of this stuff along with Revelation and Daniel and parts of Ezekiel and Zechariah and Thessalonians and so on, you can build this entire theology. And just so you know, throughout history, there have been literally hundreds of different ways that people have interpreted uh, passages like this. And that means we don't know. Uh, we know some things, but we don't know everything, and that's okay. And so, uh, so, that's sort of where we're at. So, uh, we're going to read it in just a moment, but before we do, I want to say a couple of contextual things before we dive into it, okay? Uh, the first one is this. We are barely going to scratch the surface of the surface today, okay? So, just so you know, we're hardly going to scratch the surface of the surface. Uh, we would need a seminary semester uh, worth of hours to even get through this and try to have some sort of, uh, you know, some sort of basic understanding, and still we'd be confused, and still we wouldn't get it, and still we'd have different opinions, and that's okay. So we can relax. A 30-minute sermon is not going to solve anything. Praise the, Lord. Praise the Lord. So that's okay. <laughs> But we are going to jump in, and we're going to go, I'm not going to read the entire thing all at once and then preach from it. We're going to go in sort of chunk by chunk, and we're going to talk about it and probe it a little bit, and then pull out a couple of things from it that speak into our lives today, and what does that mean? Because that's what the Scriptures are all about. How do we, You know, knowledge puffs up, but, but we actually need to know what do we do with the Scriptures, and how do we apply them, and how do we live them out? Uh, so that's number one. Uh, and number two is uh, I want you to understand that there are um, some interpreters and scholars and so on that interpret almost all of chapter 13 as, as the future, talking about the future. And that's probably how most of us, I would say, in, in this uh, room have probably understood it, that most of it is talking about the future. There are other theologians, and there are other um, scholars and other people throughout history who have understood this. Actually, it's talking about mostly things past. Most of it was actually already been fulfilled, and it's talking about sort of the past, and they tie it up with uh, AD 70 and the fall of Jerusalem and so on. And then there are others who say, actually, I think it's both and. I think it's actually both, and Uh, there's some of it that was actually fulfilled, the the destruction of of the temple in Jerusalem, and some of it is is about the future, almost as though Jesus is teaching and he's answering their questions, and he's talking about the temple's destruction, and then he'll segue off and talk about the end times, then he'll kind of come back, and then he'll segue off again. Sort of like that. That's how people have understood it uh, in that way as well. And um, for me, uh, just so you know where I'm coming from, um, I hold this theology with open hands, and I hold it with great humility. And I think that's how all of us should hold it, because it's, it's picture language, and it was it's difficult and it's complicated and it's future and, and there's stuff we don't know and there's stuff that Jesus of Nazareth didn't even know. He said, only the Father knows. Uh, you know. And so we should hold it with, uh, with a certain amount of uh, humility. But the way I'm going to be preaching is that middle ground. I think it's both and actually. I think some of it is actually about um, the temple's destruction in Jerusalem in AD 70. And I think some of it segues into the future. So what we have in this prophecy, if you like, is kind of like a telescoping, right? So what happens is we, we kind of, we see, imagine seeing at the front, seeing the telescope at the front. We see it, it's sort of two-dimensional. We read it two-dimensional. But if we were somehow able to come to the side of it and look at it from a different vantage point, we'd see, oh, actually, those things are quite a distance apart. But we see it squished together, and we read it all together, A little bit like you're hiking, and you're hiking up a hiking trail, and ahead of you is two massive mountains, and from your perspective, they actually look in the distance like they're right next to each other. But when you get closer, you realize, hang on a second, there's a a 100-mile valley in between those two mountains. But but from my vantage point, it looks like they're right next to each other, right? So that's how I'm gonna teach it, and that's how I think is the best way to understand it, uh, and the best approach, and so um, let's dive in. You ready? All right, uh, you might want to follow along in your Bibles if you have them. That's probably the easiest thing to do, but it, they'll be coming on the screen as well. So Mark 13, uh, verses 1 to 8. We'll just see the first eight verses. As he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what large stones and what large buildings. Then Jesus asked him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All will be thrown down. When he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when this will be, and what will be the sign that all these things are about to be accomplished? Then Jesus began to say to them, beware that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name and say, I am he, and they will lead many astray. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place but the end is still to come. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There'll be earthquakes in various places. There'll be famines. This is but the beginning of the birth pangs. So, Mark 13 begins with the disciples, as I said, in Jerusalem. That They're coming out of the temple and the disciples say, look at how cool the temple is. Look at it, Jesus. Isn't it spectacular? And it was. It was absolutely spectacular. Uh, uh, the, the temple, you have to remember, this isn't the original temple that Solomon built. That one got destroyed in 586 under the Babylonians, right? And then under Cyrus, when they returned, they sort of built another one that was a bit like a shack, and they, they wept over it because it's nothing like the glory of Solomon's temple. This now, this is a temple that Herod, of all people, ha- had been overseeing the building of, and it was huge. It's massive. It was like the dominating structure in Jerusalem, and it was ornate and beautiful. It took decades to build and still actually wasn't complete. Um, At the time of Jesus so so this was an incredible temple and Jesus is not nearly as impressed as the disciples He says yeah, but it's gonna be destroyed in fact not one single stone will be left on top of another the temple Is going to be destroyed? Remember in chapter 11 when I said that he came in and did the acted parable of destruction I argued it wasn't a cleansing of the temple and Then we talked about the fig tree and the cursing of the fig tree that surrounded the temple's destruction and then we got into chapter 12 and he denounces the temple leadership. All of this is kind of implicit and it's now become explicit. Jesus is explicitly saying to the disciples what has been implicit in his actions and words so far. He's speaking plainly now. He's saying, No, the temple is going to be demolished, its days are numbered. Off they go then, out of the city, up to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples have some questions about that. And understandably so, so would I, wouldn't you? Imagine yesterday on Canada Day, you were in Ottawa and you were looking at the Parliament buildings and you were thinking, wow, these Parliament buildings are so cool. And you were following this kind of religious rabbi, messiah, leader, and he says, yeah, actually that's going to be destroyed. You'd be like, I think I should call someone, first of all, right? But you would also think, well, this is the end of our nation as we know it, if our parliament buildings are going to be like completely destroyed, like what's going to happen? Like you would have questions about that. And so of course the disciples have questions about that. They want to know what on earth Jesus is talking about. When's this going to happen? And what are the signs that this is going to be fulfilled? This is, this is crazy. Our temple is going to be destroyed. Surely that means the end of us. So they have questions that they want answered. And we have to notice the questions and we have to hold the questions before us if we're properly gonna understand all that Jesus says. So what are the questions? When, when is this gonna happen? What will be the signs that this is gonna happen? Here's mistake number one that people make. They think that what they're asking is, when's the second coming happening? What's the signs that the second coming is gonna happen? That's not what they're asking. They're asking when the temple is gonna be destroyed. They're asking related to what Jesus said. That's the conversation they've had. And he says to them three things. And he's sort of answering the second question first, the signs. False messiahs, beware of them. Wars and rumors of wars. Earthquakes and famines. He says, beware of false messiahs. And he says, don't be alarmed at wars and earthquakes. These things will happen, but don't be alarmed by them. In fact, they're just the beginnings of the birth pangs. They're actually just signs that this is about to happen, and if it's birth pangs, then it's going to get worse. All the women in the room say, (laughs) "Amen." right? If if you're having birth pangs, you know it's going to hurt a bit more after the birth pangs. So, we know from history that in the, um, we know that history, uh, some of this actually happened, it did get worse. The historical accounts of the siege of Jerusalem, I would never repeat them to you because they are brutal. The accounts of what actually happened during the siege and what happened to the Jews in there and what they did to each other and all that kind of stuff, I I wouldn't even want to. It's stomach churning. So it gets worse. We know from history, in the first century, there were all kinds of people popping up and claiming to be Messiah. And we know people got swept up in following them. Jesus warned about that. There were wars and rumors of wars. There were earthquakes. There were famines in the first century. We know all of this stuff happens. It seems like Jesus is speaking specifically about the time they were in and the events that led up to the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70 the destruction of the temple. Not one stone will be left upon another and here's the signs that it's gonna happen. That's what he's talking about. However, nevertheless, there could be a bit of the telescoping going on here as well, right? That could also be happening because people will often quote wars and rumors of wars when they're talking about the end times. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars going on at the end. And, and they tie that up with the idea of tribulation and all the things we, we kind of talk about when we talk about eschatology. So, in fact, it could be that these false teachers, false messiahs, false religions, wars, earthquakes, etc., are the birth pangs Not only to the disciples' generation who were going to experience it prior to the temple's destruction, but to every successive generation as well, up to and including our own. That there could be this telescoping thing going on as well. Almost as though Jesus is saying, these are the signs... Uh that means something to you, the disciples, in the first century. These are the signs that this is gonna happen. And in every successive generation, there's gonna be the same signs and the same birthbangs to another tumultuous event that will one day happen. And and all of those signs, what they are to everybody else in every successive generation, are, are, are fulfilled, fulfilling what I'm saying here, in that these are the birthbangs, and these are saying it's surely coming. And the admonition is, be watchful and don't be alarmed. Be watchful and don't be alarmed. All generations will experience this kind of stuff. And to every generation, the message is, the end is coming. You can be sure of that. Moving on to 9 to 13. As for yourselves, beware, for they will hand you over to councils, and you'll be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings because of me as a testimony to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all the nations. When they bring you on trial and hand you over, don't be worried beforehand about what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, you don't need to prepare for a sermon, just get up and let the Holy Spirit speak to you. I'm like, no, that's not what this is talking about. That's not what this verse is talking about. Anyway, <laughs> just a little personal beef I have. Um Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by me, uh, sorry, hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. How important language is, hey? Uh, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This, again, I think is primarily, in the first case, speaking to the disciples and warning them about what will happen onto the run-up to this tumultuous event, they will be on trial, and they'll be beaten in synagogues, and they were. They also stood before governors and kings. The Apostle Paul in the first century—he read it in Acts. He stood before governors and kings. Persecution will be a reality for these people. It was. Again, read the book of Acts, and you'll read that it indeed was. Certainly, again, there can be a telescoping out, almost as though this is the archetype of what will happen, and this kind of thing will happen to all generations. And we can say, well, throughout history, these things have been absolutely present. People have been persecuted. People have been put on trial for their faith and all these things. Of course. Mark 14, but when you see the desolating sacrilege set up where it ought not to be, let the reader understand in brackets. Remember that. Then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. Someone on the housetop must not go down or enter the house to take anything away. Someone in the field must not turn back to get a coat. Woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing infants in those days. Pray that it may not be winter. For in those days there will be suffering such as not been from the beginning of creation and that God, um, sorry, I lost my train of thought there, and and that God created until now, no and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he has cut short those days. And if anyone says to you at that time, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. False messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce signs and omens and lead astray, if possible, the elect, but be alert, I've told you everything. Like, he didn't tell us everything could have told us a bit more. It wouldn't be so confusing. But um, but that's okay. He's told us all we need to know. Um, one of the key things in this is the desolating sacrilege. Uh, in, in some Bibles, it calls it the abomination that causes desolation. What on earth is he talking about? Well, it's a reference to at least a couple of places in the book of Daniel uh, where this language is used. And the first fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy was actually 167 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes, the the Greek leader, rode into Jerusalem and desecrated the temple and set up an altar to Zeus, where the altar of burnt sacrifice was, and and burnt and boiled pig's flesh on it. What a desolating sacrilege! What an abomination to the Jewish people. And those actions actually caused the revolt. And we talked about this a little bit last week, and we talked about it back when we talked about chapter 11 on Palm Sunday. This is what caused the Maccabean revolt, and that was the first uh, sort, of, um, uh, interpret, uh, sort of fulfillment of this. Jesus using that same phrase, however, means, okay, there's likely to be another fulfillment of this. This is going to happen again. There's going to be another desolating sacrilege, and this one is sort of hotly debated. There's several options. I think the best one, given our context of AD 70 and the destruction of the temple, is when the Romans again desecrated that temple in similar ways, not least by setting up the Roman standard right in the middle of the temple, another idolatrous image, and did wicked things uh, in, in um, in the temple there. And I think it actually helps us with that bracketed part, let the reader understand. Why is that in there? What does it mean? It's quite possible that when physical copies of the Gospel of Mark are being passed around the early church, from church to church to church, that when they're receiving it, this was like a wink-wink, Let the reader understand, I can't really say it plainly because sort of like in the Second World War where they would send coded messages, intelligence officers would send coded messages, you don't want to get into the wrong hands, because if it does, uh, it could spell doom for us, and that's why you had code breakers who their job was trying to break these codes. In a similar way, I think the let the reader understand is, I can't really tell you that it's going to be the Romans, but it's going to be the Romans. Let the reader understand what's going to happen. I think Jesus is warning the believers, when you see that happen, just like when we saw the desolating sacrilege back in 167, when you see that kind of thing happen again in the temple, it's time to run. Flee to the mountains. Get out. Um, We're not in the birth pangs anymore. We've gone past birth pangs. And in fact, as I said earlier, the sufferings and the brutality of the siege We're we're stomach-turning, and certainly a time to flee. It's not a time to, to stick around the temple. Jesus has already said, the temple is going to be destroyed, and I'm about to give my life as a ransom for many. We're not going to need a sacrificial system anymore. That's the old covenant. Run, get out. If only the Jews had done that. They suffered wickedly because they felt they needed to stay in the temple, but the temple was doomed. In fact, if you read the Bible, you'll know that um, the the Shekinah glory of God that that rested on Solomon's temple, it left in the book of Ezekiel, and that's when the Babylonians were able to come in and sweep it away and sweep Jerusalem away. There's no evidence it ever came back, never came back on the temple, never came back on the second temple, never came back on Herod's temple. It came back in the person of Jesus, the walking temple. Yeah. So Get out. Like, leave the temple, flee, and it makes sense of that, pray that it's not winter because it'll be hard for pregnant women and so on. That absolutely fits with this context. If you flee into the mountains, you don't want it to be winter. There's some historical record, actually, that as the siege of Jerusalem was taking place, a large number of Christians actually fled that place to a place called Pella on the other side of the Jordan River up in the hills, it actually sounds like they listened to Jesus' words and they got out when they saw the desolating sacrilege again. They got out and, um, and sort of heeded him. So now, again, is there a telescoping again? Is there another one? Because a lot of people talk about the desolating sacrilege related to the end times. Sure, absolutely. Uh, maybe. We, we don't really know, but certainly in other, if we were to bring in other parts of the Bible into this discussion, which we don't have time to today, uh, Mark 13 is enough, but if we're starting to bring some other things, there's all kinds of suggestions that there's going to be this kind of tribulation type thing in the future, and, and is the desolating sacrilege uh, sort of in the, uh, a future piece as well that this is the archetype for? Uh, absolutely could be, but we don't have time to go into uh, all of that stuff today. Now we do a bit of a shift. Jesus has been answering questions regarding when this will happen, not when the second coming will happen. That isn't what they asked. They wouldn't know what a second coming was. Jesus hasn't died and been resurrected yet. They have no concept of a second coming. They're asking about when is this going to happen and what will be the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the temple, rather, in Jerusalem. So when will this happen, and what will be the signs? And he's talked about. The birth pangs, and he's talked about the signs. Then I'm pretty sure here, then we do a segue, we do a shift. Verse 24 But in those days, after that suffering, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. Then he will send out angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Up until this point, it seems like at least primarily to the first century recipients of the letter of Mark, it's been a reference to, and the backdrop is, uh, AD 70. When we reach uh, verse 24, it seems like we've switched to the end times, doesn't it? We're talking about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. That's always been sort of understood as, as a reference to the, this idea of the second coming and Jesus uh, returning, and, and, and what we would call our great hope of the second coming of Jesus. It starts with, but in those days after that suffering, after that suffering we've just been talking about, in those days, and it sounds like he's talking about what could be next week or could be a couple of years from now or could be five years from now. Okay, it's 2,000 years, and, and still, uh, you know, it sounds like he's talking about it so soon, but it's sort of like that mountain thing, isn't it? It's sort of like, well, there's a long period in between that, but why wouldn't Jesus say, say something like that, that there's going to be this long gap? Well, the question actually is, why would he? Galatians says, not even the Son knows when, only the Father. So, Jesus would never say anything to that effect. The sun, the moon, and the stars, and all of that is biblical language for something of cosmic significance that will take place. The second coming, of course, is cosmic significance. The son of man coming with the clouds of heaven evokes this idea of him coming back the way he went at the beginning of the book of Acts. And sending out of angels to the four winds to gather the elect evokes this idea of the culmination of all things when Jesus gathers the believers to participate in the new heavens and the new earth, all believers gathered together. So have we moved into a segue of the second coming? I think we, we, we probably have here, haven't we? Jesus is speaking about events regarding the final and ultimate regathering of his people. Talking about the events of AD 70 causes Jesus then to segue to talk about another huge event that is coming. He's talking about a judgment coming on an institution, the temple, and coming on a people who refuse, and saving some people who are faithful to flee to the mountains. Now he's segued to talk about an ultimate judgment coming on institutions and coming on people who don't follow him, and a salvation of people coming from the four winds of heaven. And so there is a segue here. The AD 70 event providing an archetype, a prototype, of what will happen on a larger scale at the end, which we look forward to. A couple of pieces at the end here. Uh, 28 to 31. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things take place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think after the AD 70 and the segue to the end times, I think he's come back to eighty-seventy 70 again. Uh, we mentioned the fig tree before, and it was unfruitful. And, and here he changes the usage of it. Now he says, when you see it growing, you know that summer is near. It's a sign that the season is changing. So when you see this stuff happening, you know fulfillment is near. And again, th- this can be used as sort of end times language as well, I suppose. We can use it in that way also, except it doesn't make sense of this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. Well, they passed away quite a long time ago. It only makes sense if we're talking about AD 70 and not the end. And then I think Jesus flips to yet another segue, 32 to 37. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, so we've flipped to end times again. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on watch. Therefore, keep awake. For if you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening or at midnight or at the cockcrow, or at dawn, or else you may find yourself asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you all is, keep awake. And so again, I think he's done a similar thing here. He's been talking about the signs of the fulfillment of the temple's destruction, answering their questions, using the fig tree as an example, and then segues to talk about something similar, about the end again. About that hour or day, not even the angels nor Jesus know, so it's got to be talking about the end. That sounds like eschatological language again. Only the Father knows. And that's why it's always pretty questionable for me, and I hope for you as well, when, when there are some authors out there and there's some, some scholars out there that, get really, that are really obsessed about the end times, and they start writing books where they try to predict the date of the end. It's like, don't do that, please. And then they almost, they almost use, like we're supposed to watch and we're supposed to know the times and the season and we're supposed to watch for those things, absolutely. But sometimes it feels like they're trying to use things as a, like a crystal ball and they're trying to work out everything and, and, uh, and they end up trying to predict the date of the end and they end up wrong, and, which is embarrassing and also makes us look dumb. And so it's really sad when people do that. And I think this is the verse that says, not even the sun knows, quit trying to guess when the end is. Let's stop doing that. Are we good? You with me still? Okay, good. Is it clear? We got it? We know what's going to happen, right? Clear as mud, mud. absolutely. All right, and this is why we have to hold it with so much humility. there's so much going on in this passage. Uh, when you start reading that passage as well, and we've only been looking at Mark 13, but when you start bringing in a bunch of other passages from the scriptures, especially Revelation, and especially Daniel, and parts of Ezekiel, and, and different things like that, um, it gets more and more complex, and, and there's been hundreds and hundreds of different ways to understand it. It gets more complicated. What I think we need to do is pull out a couple of things now to bring us back down to, okay, but what do we do with this? And there's two things I'd like to suggest we do with this. The application part is where Jesus calls us to be watchful, and to keep awake. And I think sometimes uh, maybe some of the motivation for people to write those books uh, is because they're worried that we're going to miss it if we don't know. So Jesus isn't trying to trick us. We're going to know. We're going to know. But we are called to be watchful and to keep awake, so let me encourage us to take that to heart. And I think watchfulness and wakefulness are an important posture for Christians to take. Elsewhere, it says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Elsewhere, it says we're encouraged to be a bride, preparing ourselves for the coming bridegroom. How good are we doing at preparing ourselves? The idea of wakefulness, I think, is pay attention not only in a watchful sense for the signs, and and we should do that. But not only that, but also make sure our faith is, uh, is in place and we're digging in and we're not in slumber. There was a real warning at the end there to not slumber. Be wakeful in your walk with Jesus. So my question for you is, are you in a place of spiritual slumber or dynamic engagement with Jesus? And I'm going to poke you a bit today, just like I poke, I poke myself too. Are you tending to the vineyard of your soul or are you just going through the motions? Are you sleepwalking through life just trying to get to the next season or the next year? Let me ask you this. What are your personal spiritual goals right now? Don't have any? Why? I bet many people in the room have educational goals and career goals and financial goals and travel and uh, leisure goals and retirement goals and all those kind of things. What about spiritual goals? Shouldn't those be the first? Because you know what? Those are going to last into all eternity. All that other stuff that I just said, that list I just gave, those are good. Have goals, absolutely. But they're going to pass away. They're not going to matter one day. Do you have spiritual goals? And I would never ask you to put up your hand, but I'm thinking in a room like this, probably most of us don't. Why? Let me encourage you. Wake up. The bridegroom is coming. And let me close as we go to communion um, by echoing Jesus' words from early in the passage, but don't be alarmed. I don't know if passages like this make you kind of nervous or not or, or worried or frustrated or whatever, or, or world events trouble you. They do me. Watching the world in its current state is absolutely alarming. It's absolutely alarming, um, And it always has been, it feels like it's getting worse. I don't know if we just have access to more information uh, or not, but it seems pretty bad. Um, But don't be alarmed, for 2000 years we have known that all of this stuff, rumors of wars and wars and earthquakes and famines are going to happen. We cannot stop them from happening. We won't stop them from happening. So don't be alarmed. It doesn't mean that we become blasé about it or indifferent to people, to human suffering. Of course not, just don't be troubled because we know the end of the story, even if we don't know exactly how it's all gonna work together. And in fact, things like those described, those, these terrible things that happen around us actually give the church an opportunity to lean in and to serve the world and to love on people. And how you live in front of the watching world by not being alarmed and not being troubled How you live preaches, because let me tell you, the world out there is full of people who are anxious and are worried, and if you dig a little bit deep, their lives are in a mess, and they're nervous, and they're worried, and all of these things, And, and probably many of us in the room are as well, refusing to take on the anxiety of the world, but to stay calm and to have hope, well, that preaches, and people need to hear that because they are not doing good. That hope, of course, comes from the cross of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to celebrate uh, communion together. So um, if you didn't pick up uh, elements on the way in, um, there there are some at the back, and I, th- I hope there's some up in the, in the balcony. Um, so if you didn't get elements, you're going to want to grab those. And we're going to carefully... Pull back the cellophane there and get the wafer. Don't you love this? And pull back um, to reveal the juice. I'm pretty sure if, if, we, if we buried these, you know, in a thousand years, you could still, still take them. sorry. <laughs> All right, everybody get, get some elements? Fabulous. Friends, we're going to join with millions of believers throughout the world today, and throughout the centuries of history, we are rooted in our history as we take these elements that represent and point to the body and the blood of Jesus. And... Um, For I received from the Lord, but I also handed on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So this wafer uh, actually does point to and represent the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so uh, all you who know him, let's eat together. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup, cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Or you who know him, let's drink together. Lord Jesus, I, I'm so thankful this morning for the Word of God, and um, it is so beautiful and wonderful, and I'm thankful for the things that are simple for us to understand, and I'm thankful for the things that are complicated, and I know that it, it causes us and calls us to dig in, to dig deep, and, and I thank you as well that, that something, something like we've been studying today, Lord, that you're calling us just to be watchful, you're calling us to, to be looking, uh, and you're calling us to be prepared and to be in the world, um, reaching others and loving others because the day's coming. The day's coming of your glorious return at the, the sound of the trumpet, and we look to that day. We can't wait to hear the sound of that trumpet, Jesus. And so I'm so thankful, Lord, and we, we hold your word with humility as we try to understand it, recognizing that um, we, we make errors in interpreting all the time, and that's okay. But I'm so thankful that the things that are there for our salvation are simple to understand, and, uh, and it's okay if we don't get all of it. But we, we do seek you, and we're so thankful um, that the word became flesh, it dwelt among us. And we're thankful, uh, Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross and that that is the center of our theology. That is the center of our worldview. It's the center of our practice. It's the center of our worship, the cross of Jesus Christ. So we love you this morning. We are so thankful for what you have done on our behalf. We are overwhelmed with your love for us. And we praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's sing. Thanks, Brennan.